And now from Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him and all the region along the Jordan, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance." Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Some of you know, last February, I was with a group of about 50 people. We were touring the Holy Land. We were walking in the footsteps of Jesus, if you will. And one of the stops was at the Jordan River. It looks like about a, any river you would have seen. If you've been to the Illinois River, you've seen a river that looks very similar to the Jordan. But there's opportunities there to wade into the water and to baptize someone or remember your baptism. Out of our group, there were only about a dozen who really wanted to get in the water. I thought it might be kind of cold, and I can tell you it is refreshingly cold when you step into the water of the Jordan River in February. But nonetheless, I went in the water with many others. A whole group of us waded into the Jordan to remember our baptism. We had all been baptized before, and yet there was something significant, I would say, it was important to be a part of that kind of experience, not only for those of us who got in, but the rest of our group were there on the banks of the river cheering us on. By the time all of us kind of were dunked in the water, those on the side kind of wanted a part of that. So we sprinkled them as well in a good Methodist tradition. And all of us could remember our baptism. We were at the place or one very similar to it where Jesus was baptized. We were in the river where John became the baptizer. As you can tell from this third chapter, he was fiery. He was in the tradition of the prophets, and he was calling for repentance. Now, we were not the only group at the river. Others were there. You could watch up and down the river as people were getting in the water and coming out. I'm sure that some who got in the water then came out were transformed. They were renewed or refreshed, inspired, had a fresh sense of God's Spirit being in ministry with their spirit. 
But I am sure there are others who wade into the water and maybe even receive the waters of baptism and somehow come out unchanged. Their lives do not really reflect a change in behavior, even though they have been baptized. When John, in this passage, sees these religious authorities coming at him, he sees a disconnect between them wanting to be baptized and what he sees in terms of their behavior. Listen to how he kind of calls them out in verse 7 and 8. But when John saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. I've put that in your outline because it's a key phrase in this whole passage. Bear fruit worthy of repentance. John is saying, make sure your life is changed. If you're going to commit your life to God, then make sure your life is aligned with God's purposes and God's will. John believes that these religious authorities are saying one thing, but acting in a way contrary to that. But in terms of the dynamics of baptism, it's important to understand what all we believe is going on in this significant rite that we call a sacrament, an initiation into the life of the church. On our side of the baptismal equation, we are committing to live life on God's terms, by God's grace and guidance. We're committing to be a follower of Christ and to live as closely to the way Christ lived as we can, asking for God's help. And, of course, that's what comes on the other side. On the other side, coming from God's side, we recognize that God's love has grasped us and will never let go. That God's grace has been extended to us. In fact, that all of life and the love we experience from God is all an offer from God. Offered to us without price, as we say in our baptism liturgy. We're recognizing the power of God's grace being poured out upon us. Whether we have a little bit of water sprinkled on us or we're completely immersed in water. It's a symbol of God's love and refreshment, God's Holy Spirit power being offered to us to change and transform our lives so that we might know the abundant life of which Christ promised to us. In more traditional language, we say that we're dying to our old self or our false self and then coming out of the water or standing up after we've been sprinkled and rising to new life in Christ, to our true selves, to who God intended us to be. John the Baptist doesn't see that these religious authorities really want to change their lives. He doesn't believe that he can see in the way they act that God is at work in their lives so that they might be embodying the love of God in all that they say and do. So he calls them out as they come toward him. Then he speaks of this twin dynamic later in the passage we read down in verse 11. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. 
he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Do you hear both sides of that? That we repent, we say we want to turn toward God to do better than we know we have done. And at the same time, God has grasped us. God's love has enveloped us. The grace of God is offered to us for our own good. The result of our response to God's grace offered in baptism is fruit worthy of repentance. To use the language of John in this passage, that we will bear fruit worthy of repentance or the turn or the change in our life. It will be a life marked by greater goodness and more kindness, embodying the love of God in the way that we live our day-to-day lives. The idea here is that your words and your deeds match. John is saying, I'm not sure about these who are coming if all of them really want to be changed, that what they say and how they act will be the same. But that's what he's calling us to when he talks about repentance. Have you seen the trouble with Maggie Cole. It's a show on PBS. It aired on Sunday night for six episodes. I think that first part of it is over. It will probably air again. You can probably still find it. It's kind of a comedy drama, but it's an interesting story. Maggie, the main character, is a bit of a gossip. She lives in a small town. She likes to think of herself as a historian that she's only capturing the history of her small town when she's in everybody else's business but one day there's a reporter from out of town wants to talk to her about the history of their village as they're coming up on an anniversary oh she talks to him all right they're in a local pub he keeps buying more and more drinks finally he's asking her about all the gossip of the people she knows her friends her neighbors. She spills the beans, if you will. Now she thinks he's going to do a story about how quaint and charming their village is, but rather he's doing an expose on all the dirt he can find, all the scuttlebutt that he can spread about other people that Maggie has shared with him. So she's expecting this beautiful story about a charming village in which she's living. But what comes out is gossip, innuendo, slander. It's terrible. It makes her friends and neighbors look terrible, and she is humiliated in the process. The rest of the episodes deal with the fallout from all of that. They deal with the question, how does one go on after it is clear that your words and deeds do not match? Now, they don't use theological language, but what they're dealing with is sin abounding and then the possibility for forgiveness. Or how do you strive for redemption? Or how do you find reconciliation after sin and brokenness occur? Our passage today points out the path for Maggie and for all of us. It's in verse 1 and 2. Let me read it to you again. In those days... John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent, 
for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, it's the same phrase Jesus is going to use in the next chapter when he initiates his public ministry. It's important to understand this idea of repenting and turning toward God, being sorry for what we've done, but more than that, taking a step toward God, recommitting our lives to God and being open to God's love to change and transform us for the good. It's a call to align your life with God's life, to put God at the center as a follower of Christ rather than yourself. Our stewardship theme back in October drew from a passage in John 15 that said to us, abide in Christ. It talked about vine and branches and how Christ is the vine and we are the branches and the energy or the sap for the vine comes to us and empowers us as branches to bear fruit to bear fruit of love. We translated the passage where typically in the NRSV it says abide to stay connected. It talked about the importance of staying connected to Christ if we want to experience this life that comes after repentance, to experience this life of abundance in Christ. It is our connection to Christ that fills us so we can bear fruit, the fruit we bear is the fruit of love. As Jesus reminds us in that same chapter 15 of John, he says, I give you a new commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Belinda and I talk to a lot of people every week who are connecting with the church. She was having a conversation with one a few weeks ago. This person was worshiping with us on Channel 8. Every week, she was participating in the life of the church. She was sending gifts to the church. Belinda said, you should join. You're already fulfilling these membership vows. And she said, oh, I drifted away from being active in the church a long time ago. I've done so many things wrong. Your church wouldn't want me. Can you hear the pain? I think you can even hear repentance. But you can hear the struggle that so many have to believe that God's love is offered to us, not because we are good, but because God is good. And it's God's love that we can receive that will then change things. We don't change on our own. We trust in God's love and God's grace to change and transform us. The church wants to be the place that says to those who think they're not worthy, oh no, you're exactly the kind of people the church is here for. We are here not as a group of righteous people or a group of saints, but we're a haven for sinners. We're a place where people can come to experience the love of God in their lives, to recognize that God's love is greater than any wrong we have ever done or any sin we have ever committed, that God's love can take all of that and make it whole again. I put it in the outline this way. We do not earn God's love. God's love is a gift available to us, all of us. The church is to be the place that proclaims that, not to try to keep people away, but to open the doors wide for people to come and know 
God's love being revealed to us in Jesus Christ. You can hear how all the people are coming, even in the text we read today in verse 5 and 6. Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him, and all the region along the Jordan. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. We don't have to overcome our sin to come to God. We bring our sin to God and offer it to God. Knowing and believing this gospel proclamation that God's love can transform it all and transform us. And we can experience the fullness of life that God intends for God's children. We are not perfect people. We're not people without mistakes and regrets. But we are people who have received God's love and now are trusting in God to lead us to even better days. We are people seeking to know Christ more clearly, to love Him more dearly, and to follow Him more nearly, as Richard of Chichester said decades, hundreds of years ago, speaking about what it means to be a follower of Christ and how God's love in Christ transforms all of our living. Well, Advent is a time to prepare for all of that, to be ready to repent where we need to repent, to be open to God's love to change us where we need to be changed. Advent as a season of preparation means to prepare your heart to receive God's love anew as we remember this story of God's love coming to us in this baby born in a manger. Prepare your heart. Be ready to recognize God's love coming into your life. For the first time or for another time, receive God's power, God's Holy Spirit to love you, to forgive you, to make you whole and to lead you into a new and wonderful future. One of the great Advent Christmas hymns is Joy to the World. I put some of the lyrics at the bottom of the outline. I think it captures this idea, Joy to the World. The Lord is come, let earth receive her king. Let every heart, every heart, prepare him room. May it be so for all of us this year. Amen. And thanks be to God.